nuclear accident near the Soviet Union, and the Soviets have admitted that it's an explosion at a nuclear plant in the Soviet Union. Deafening silence. Hello, and welcome to episode three of Deafening Silence, an audio space dedicated to discussing what really happened on April 26, 1986, at the Chernobyl nuclear plant, and how its aftermath created a new modern Russian identity, characterized by the absence of the dual faith. We know what you're asking. What is a dual faith, and what events have to take place to allow for the mutualistic coexistence of differing religious beliefs in a society? And do not fret, we have the answers. On a macro level, the Russian dual faith is simply the coexisting Russian belief in Orthodox Christianity and paganism. On a micro level, the religious duality contains a more philosophical contrast between protective and malicious forces. For instance, an evil witch named Baba Yaga in the woods who eats children was an innately harmful force to the Russian peasantry, and their wooden cross and other religious items were beneficial and protective forces used to scare her away. Emma, how exactly did the dual faith come to be? Great, great question. And I actually consider myself quite a research lover, so I had a really fun time exploring its origins. And let me just say, medieval Russia is quite a unique historical time period. See, during the Russian medieval era, due to the obvious lack of communicative technologies we use today, and the vast, seemingly never-ending terrain of the Russian nation, hundreds of small peasant farming towns developed very rich and unique cultures with adjoining traditions. But embedded within these small villages was an ancestral belief in spirits, witches, and water creatures. The paganistic pantheon was eventually met with the challenge of assimilating to an increasingly Christianized Russia. This forced Christianization eventually converged with prior paganistic beliefs to create what we now refer to as the dual faith. And yes, of course there is a Russian word for it, but I will save anyone listening from having to hear me butcher it. The dual faith became an integral part of the Russian identity because it made living life emotionally easier. By converting human phenomenons and miseries like a failed crop or death, into tricks from the domovoy that lives in your house, who could then be scared away by the cross or other forms of appeasement. The peasantry could quasi-remove themselves from the harsh and unexplainable reality of their existence. They didn't have to grapple with existential dread or existential questions. An evolved form of the dual faith persisted into imperial Russia, but the paganistic belief in spirits was then replaced by the reverence to social stratification and the obsession with the externalization of one's rank. This extensive stratification, when paired with Christianity, allowed for Russian citizens to view the world through a tinted lens coated with the mentally numbing obsession with social externalities. This lens gave its citizens the ability to drown out the hardships of everyday life, and Christianity to provide ultimate purpose to one's suffering. Eventually, after the fall of the Tsar and the rise of the communistic-style beliefs and much, much violence, the Soviet Union was born. Now we postulate that this dual faith was still alive within Soviet Russia, 
up until the nuclear accident at Chernobyl. But we know it must have evolved. So what exactly replaced the reverence to social stratification within imperial Russia? What force coexisted with Christianity to form a modern dual faith? Again, a really good question. And I think that's actually a question that I pondered on for a while, and I think a lot of scholars have pondered on that. But in the end, after researching and reading Voices of Chernobyl following Anna Karenina, I truly believe that what replaced um, the imperial like reverence to social stratification and like the obsession with the externalization of you know one's place in that social web, I believe that it is a reverence to the Soviet ideology. So obviously, as I said before, um, the czar fell, um, Russia kind of descended into this communistic land, and that was kind of accepted into the Soviet ideology. So for me, when I say Soviet ideology, um, and you can back me up on kind of defining what is a Soviet ideology, yeah. Bella, I'm talking about Soviet heroism. So the, the idea that there really are no individuals, you're not trying to live out yeah. your individual desires but you're trying to kind of push the nation further as a whole. So that kind of foregoing one's personal desires and accepting this minuscule place within this huge grand framework is I think one really important factor. I think a second factor is just, you have to accept that, not not that everyone's equal, but you have to view people as that. You all are comrades. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I think that I actually think the phrase comrade perfectly illuminates that. It just, it's one overarching term for everyone. You could be a doctor, you could be, um, I almost said a chimney sweep. I don't think that's the time period. <laughs> but you could be like, um, in this case, working at Chernobyl. And no matter what, you are a comrade. So I think those are two major factors within, or two major like tenets in the Soviet ideology. Yeah. And I think that the overwhelming adherence to those and the overwhelming kind of like belief in that ideology as kind of a faith, like it framed their society, it framed the way that they acted and viewed things, that replaced the social stratification in the imperial um, Russia, which is kind of ironic because in imperial Russia, the social stratification um, was exactly what crumbled in the Soviet ideology. Because it's like in, in Imperial Russia, you want to be an individual, you want to show people your rank and your class. But then in modern Russian times, I'm using air quotes because it's not super modern. Um, but during that time in Soviet Russia, you were not an, an individual. Um, and that's kind of shown later in Chernobyl when, you know, in Voices of Chernobyl, when people say, I didn't even think about saying no to going to Chernobyl because it was just what had to be done. It's like you never questioned should I do this or should I not do this or whatever. You you just went with what was going to be best for the nation and you did not question. So that's kind of my long-winded answer to what yeah. replaced um, the um, social stratification in the dual faith um, and it kind of its coexistence with Christianity. Would you agree? How would you kind of define Soviet ideologies? And I think that this belief that they were part of something bigger really binded them together because before they were just focused on this idea of Christianity. But when we see the Soviet Union forming, we see these beliefs of communism, people thought that they were serving someone greater. And although the SSR wasn't as high as a Christian god or someone, it was still almost to that point. And as Emma, I think she might mention this a bit later, is we see these statues, we see these symbols 
semiotics everywhere around Russia. And even after Chernobyl exploded, there's still a Lenin statue there. And people have a hard time seeing what's really going on because they're blinded by this idea that they're serving a force that's much greater. And I think that Christianity doesn't fully go away because they still believe in these gods. They still participate in these traditions because that's what was socially accepted at the time. But they couldn't fully separate themselves from their country. Yeah, and I think you bring up a really good point. Um, I think that in order to have something put up, almost put as an equal to Christianity, in, in a weird way, Christianity has to kind of back it up. So I think yeah. that with, with like pagan beliefs and spirits, I think the medieval peasantry kind of saw it as like these evil forces, or not even evil sometimes, but these forces that would then be expelled by Christianity or the cross, or they were interwoven in a weird way. But then with um, social stratification, I truly think the aristocracy, specifically Nicholas um, II, I believe that was the Lassar, um, they thought that they were like from God and they, they thought that, you know, God put me in this place in society and I have to adhere to that. And then I think that translates also into modern Russia with the Soviet ideology, because I, I agree with you. I think that they saw it as like, God put me in this wonderful nation, the best nation in the world. And I have to like, I have to push it forward and I have to allow the global perspective to see how beautiful and how, like how much better it is. Um, so I think that that's a really good point that you brought forth about, you know, what does it take for a belief to kind of get put up next to Christianity? Um, and I think that, you know, in Soviet Russia, it's not talked about as much, um, especially from the Western perspective. It's just a lot of, you know, Soviet hatred, which of course it wasn't perfect. Um, it wasn't perfect at all, but a lot of the things that were taught were just taught that Soviets were bad. It was communistic. It was it was really corrosive, people died, blah, blah, blah. but you don't really hear about, you know, how it existed, um, why people believed in it, and I think that Chernobyl provides a really good way for us to study it and to talk about it. And I think that Chernobyl is really challenges this idea of dual faith can both coexist at the same time and we see this in Chernobyl people are having to make a decision are they going to be doing what they have to do for the government are they going to stick with their own beliefs about Christianity are they going to do both and I think that this accident really opens everyone's eyes to see that they can't necessarily both coexist there's a lot of issues that happen when you try to continue with this idea that the government that Russia is the highest power um and so I think that that's a really interesting point yeah I, and I, again like I think that's a really a really good question like is the coexistence of two different beliefs is that purely theoretical like can there truly be a point when both assimilate and they kind of converge and they can't exist in a society or will there always be that tension and that conflict and i honestly after studying and researching i think that the dual faith in the russian society and that's embedded in the russian identity is the closest thing that a society has come to um the closest any two beliefs have come to assimilating fully into each other but then also you know when it implodes um which we'll talk about right after this when it does inevitably implode at chernobyl you know it kind of shows like was that even real did it even assimilate to a certain point yeah now a brief word from our sponsor this episode 
episode is sponsored by Vronsky's Video Games. They're striving to create a more sustainable future by donating half of their profits to eco-friendly causes. Use our code ANA for 10% off your next purchase. What about the events that occurred at and after Chernobyl shattered the Soviet ideology and Christianity, and with it, the dual faith? Again, that's a really, really great question. We kind of segued into it through our last point. Um, I think that that was the question that came up over and over again during my research. Like, what exactly about Chernobyl shattered the Soviet ideology and Christianity along with it? And, you know, inevitably, inevitably that's also going to shatter the dual faith because those are the two components of it. So I think in order to answer that question, Voices of Chernobyl and also just a disclaimer, Isabel and I, we both have watched the miniseries and that answers a lot of questions. And it, of course, yeah. is a, um, a dramatization, um, or however you'd phrase it, but it's, it's based in reality. And that plus Voices of Chernobyl has allowed me to kind of give a good answer, find a good answer for this question. So I think the aftermath and I think the the response is what really just pushed the Soviet ideology um, over the edge and completely broke it. I think there were cracks before, um, but I think that, you know, initially the first response from different um, administrators at the plant it was just denial, which one that that's paired with the fact that no one thought that a core could explode, but also down the line of, I guess, like administrative um, roles and administrative managers, they all lied and they all said, it is okay. We're cleaning it up in yeah. order to one, preserve their chance at getting a promotion to preserve their, their reputation, which like theoretically, right. During a, um, in a Soviet nation, reputation should not be, important it should be a group like a group effort to push forward russia you shouldn't be worried about like your role and your social standing but there was corruption all down the bureaucratic bureaucratic line so i think people trying to save their necks people trying to avoid getting in trouble by their administrators um and their bosses people um literally within like the executive board i don't know the exact name for it um they were getting lied to and that eventually led to sherbina that's the name of the guy right do you remember that from the miniseries, Isabella? Like, Sherbina and then the main um, scientist, they get sent down there and they investigate Chernobyl and they realize that it's it was not how the r- reports painted it. It was not okay. Um, it was a huge disaster that was then subsequently covered up. And I think that response was seen for the first time. Like, they were rushing to to have an adequate response and to cover up everything. But in doing that, the people within Russia could actually see it happening. And I think the, the volunteers that went to Chernobyl could see it happening. So when they were sent down, they weren't told how much radiation they were getting. They weren't told really like where they were going specifically and like what they were doing. They they weren't told to like not drink the vodka or not eat the food. Like maybe they were, but they were never told the extent of the issue. But in the end, once they got cancer and they became sick, they realized like if the whole point of this nation is to be equals it's to further like this russian image then why were why was there so much corruption down the line and i also think that i wrote about this in my essay like the russian nation didn't even care about the people that were trying to push for the nation like they weren't doing anything for the people that cared so much about them they were just sending them as 
human like weapons to shovel the graphite off the roof when they knew they would die. So at a certain point, I think the complete disregard for human life allowed people yeah. who had the party card to not want it anymore, which which was a huge thing. People were threatened, like, do you want to have your party card removed? And we'll throw it away if you don't go to Chernobyl. And I think after months of people going, getting cancer, getting sick, and then like coming back and not having representation and not being cared about, I think that just showed people like we are in a nation that doesn't even care about us as a whole. It, it just cares about like its image to the world, which is not really, it's not the Soviet cause that they all were fighting for. Exactly. And I think this is what Emma and I were talking about in my episode, that the Russian government and Russia as a whole cared more about their public image than they cared about the actual people. And we see this idea about the Soviet perfectionism being challenged during Chernobyl because they tell everyone that the radiation they're experiencing is only around 3.61R uh, and that's not that bad. And they go ahead and tell other governments and other countries about that radiation level. They never expose how bad the radiation actually is. And what that leads to is they have other countries being drawn in, such as Germany thinking it's not that bad and sending over things to help them clear up the mess which we see also in the miniseries completely crumble because they didn't really know what was happening and I think that before people were still clinging on to this idea that the Soviet Union was still the most achievable thing that's what they had to uphold but what we see is once they start getting machinery from other countries who had been lied to they start to see that maybe the government doesn't care about them as much as they really think they are. And I think Emma was touching on this, which is also really important. We see, as such as the miniseries portrays, how these leaders and committees are still trying to put this idea in people's heads that Lenin, that Stalin, that's what they're doing it for. And I think it's mostly this older crowd, this older generation sort of driving forward this idea that you should be doing what you can for the country because that's why you're here exactly and to kind of answer the latter part of that question about you know how did christianity become shattered i think it's tied along to exactly like what what isabella has been saying and what i've been saying it's the fact that this soviet soviet ideology just crumbles um exactly what isabella said you know this soviet perfectionism um, with a global lens was kind of dominating the scene, um, dominating the rooms where all these executives were deciding what to do. Um, and that led to them kind of putting human life as a second priority. And I think that in doing that, so many people within the zone were forced to live in an area that they knew was polluted. It was contaminated. It was poisoned. Um, and they knew they should have been evacuated. They knew that there were so many things, like they found this out later. They knew that they were in so much danger but at a certain point, I think the fact that they had to find all of the things out later and they had to kind of have this delayed reaction when at that point the deed was done, they were infected, they were poisoned. Um, I think that led to a sense of like existential questioning. Like yeah. what God would ever allow for this to happen? What God would put me in a country that didn't care about me? What God would create an atom that would then yeah. destroy me? Like the, it used to be referred to as what the great russian atom where it was mm -hmm. something like it was some funny mnemonic thing that um i should remember but it, it was not an, an a dangerous very like very poisonous entity but i think after chernobyl people begin to question like 
what what are we living in no god would create right so i think like that that religious questioning came later after like the soviet ideology crumbled but i think it definitely did fall with the ideology and then with the yeah. faith and I think that's really important because although people still participated in these very Christian traditions and norms, they're not taught that they're here because of God. They're taught that they're here to serve their government, they're to serve their people. And that's really where the line is a bit blurred for these Russian people. Because on one hand, they're still celebrating all of these Christian ideals, but they're not thinking that they're here because of God. They're thinking they're here because of the Soviet Union. How does the name of our podcast reflect, on a macro and micro level, life after Chernobyl? Yeah, that's that's a really complex question, but I, I think it's really important to answer. So, again, to reiterate what we said in our introduction video, we decided on the name Deafening Silence um, as a testament to the censorship and to the overall kind of like feelings that Chernobyl invokes. So Deafening Silence, it came from a speech by Netanyahu um, at a United Nations conference when he said the response by the nation was silence, deafening silence. And he stood there for like five minutes and it was crazy, but it, it was super profound. And I think that the name perfectly reflects life after Chernobyl because the dual faith, which had been embedded in the Russian identity for for generations. It was this archaic thing that evolved and stuck with the Russians and it allowed them to kind of blur the reality of their exist existence. It just evaporated alongside their their Soviet ideology, what they lived by and like kind of their, their I guess their anchorage to Christianity and their ability to use that con to contextualize life. So I think that when all three of those things evaporated and disappeared, to me, and to, uh, how I read like voices from Chernobyl, I got the feeling of deafening silence, which I didn't think was possible to a certain extent. But I think that the term deafening silence just means this like hollowness, emptiness, this void that's like, all consuming. So one of the things, um, one of the excerpts that I took and put in my paper that I'll read right now is from voices from Chernobyl. Um, it's from a psychologist. I think it perfectly just it perfectly encapsulates what exactly we're saying and it perfectly encapsulates this deafening silence as a feeling. So um, it, it's quoted as saying, I traveled to the Chernobyl zone. I've been there many times now and understood how I am. I'm falling apart. My past no longer protects me. There aren't any answers. They were there before, but now they're not. The future is destroying me not the past. And I'll let you sit on that for a second, but in general, it's a really, really like concise, yet like moving piece because it, it just reflects what we've been saying throughout this podcast, that this dual faith was such a huge part of the Russian identity because it tinted reality. It allowed Russians to go through life and to avoid existential questions and to it like it basically protected them like that was the protective force to them, to them. But he says like there aren't any quests like there aren't answers anymore. They were there before, but now they're not. It's because that dual faith was there before to contextualize their existence and to protect them. But then after Chernobyl, it's all gone and they're stuck in this deafening silence. So that's that's kind of the macro level. And then I, I hit on the micro level when I talked about that psychologist 
Um, but do you have any other thoughts on that? Do you agree with what I said? Isabel? Yeah, yeah. I definitely agree with what Emma's talking about. And I think deafening silence can also refer to the response after Chernobyl. We see that other governments aren't really stepping up to help, but that's not necessarily their fault. And it's mostly driven by Russia and by what we were saying in the second question, that they want to say that they're perfect and that they don't need help from other countries. And I think because of that, we see a lot of oppression happening to everyone in the Chernobyl zone trying to help. And so because of this censorship, that's another example and another way to interpret the deafening silence name. And that's really important because we see these people have voices. They have a lot to say. And that's exactly why Emma read that quote, that this person has something really important to say, but they're often silenced by the government. Exactly. And I think that Isabel and I've talked about this a lot. We, we think that that's one of the reasons why it made reading Chernobyl, the voices from Chernobyl, so difficult. And we can hit on this um, for a little bit, but Isabella, do you kind of want to explain and talk about why you think it was really difficult to read the book in the sense of like how, how it compared to other atrocities and tragedies? Like what yeah. did it invoke in you? Yeah, so this is kind of what Emma and I were talking about in my episode, but it evokes this very raw emotion from you that you can't get from other types of stories. And I think that's what really helped Svetlana Alexeyevich get the Nobel Prize because we see these people, they're telling their stories. We're not just reading facts. We're not reading research. We're reading the stories from people that have been silenced for so long. There's a reason why there aren't that many books written about the topic because Lukashenko and all these dictators that were around during that time and are still around continue to try to suppress these people and censor any stories that come out. And I think what Emma's getting at is because we're hearing stories told from people that were actually there we're getting a perspective that we wouldn't have gotten any other way and i think that's really important to stop this silence that's still happening today exactly and i completely agree with what you're saying isabella i had a similar experience um to me, the the feeling that I felt that I couldn't kind of I couldn't put a pin on. I was like, this isn't this isn't depression. This isn't like sadness. Yeah. But looking back, it was deafening silence. It was that yeah. feeling of like hollowness and this like inevitable yeah. dread because I was reading those stories and exactly with with what we talked about in your episode. You know, the power of telling stories. Like there there's so much power in stories. Um, yeah. And I think specifically in this case having to read quotes like that from the psychologist and having to read about like a, a volunteer went to Chernobyl, gave his hat to his kid and then the kid got a tumor in his brain. Like yeah. having to read that is so difficult and having to deal with the fact that that's still going on. Like if you look at the cancer rates in the zone and in Ukraine, they're insanely high. I think it's like one out of five people have some health concern that's yeah, with radiation. I don't know if that's true, but it's it's a pretty big statistic. Um, but I think in general, like looking back um, and reading these stories, and then having to kind of come to the realization that it's still happening and it's it's still going to happen in the future. That's really hard to grapple with. It's that deafening silence. And I think in contrast to like nine eleven um, and other big tragedies, you know, 
I'm not saying that it it doesn't reverberate around like, across people's lives, but 9/11 was kind of like a singular attack, and then it caused a lot of sadness. But with Chernobyl, it's a singular expo- explosion, but all of the radioactivity is still there today. So it's kind yeah. of like it's been trapped. Um, and I feel like we're all kind of guilty of this idea of continuing the silence. Because when you're reading the story, it's very disturbing and it's very graphic at many times. And you don't want to see it. You don't want to imagine it. And you want to just stop hearing about it. And it's very easy to just close the book and not have to read it anymore. But these people are living this. This is their life every day. And I think because it's so easy nowadays to click off of something or to stop reading it because it makes you too sad that's just everyone continuing the silence in a small way and i think to challenge this belief and overcome it we need to start talking about it and we need to stop saying that we don't want to think about it anymore because that's only hurting these people more and i think that was one of the root causes of this podcast and why emma and i wanted to speak about it because we can't keep turning away from this anymore because one that's only hurting the people more and two that only makes it more likely that this will happen again in the future and yeah isabella that's a beautiful way to wrap up our Chernobyl miniseries and our Deafening Silence miniseries. So we want to thank all of our listeners for kind of refusing to let that silence continue and for allowing us to kind of talk about this not issue, this this really prevalent tragedy, um, specifically Miss Rogers. Um, we don't know if any other people will be listening, but thank <laughs> you for taking the time to do this during your winter break. And we really want to encourage um, all of our listeners to go to the Chernobyl museum can uh, there's a virtual site just to read as much as possible um so that we don't continue this corrosive cycle of refusing to listen and forgetting so again thank you so much for listening i'm emma i'm isabella and this was the deafening silence podcast